I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Rosemary Hill. I'm a contributing editor at the London Review of Books, and I'm delighted to be talking to Claire Bucknell, who I'm sure you've also read in the London Review of Books. She is a regular LRB contributor. She's a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, um, and this is her first book as author, the Treasuries, described by the Times as a dazzling account um, of anthologies. Why we make anthologies is one of the things we're going to be talking about. We all know about anthologies. We all get anthologies given to us at school. And in the age of the playlist, every person perhaps their own anthologist. So I suppose my first question to you, Claire, is why have you done this uber anthology of anthologies? Yeah, good question. So my academic background is in poetry and the connection between sort of poetry and elitism is a sort of one that we all recognise. Poetry is a thing that not everyone likes traditionally, but anthologies um, now and historically have sort of been places where poetry achieves something close to a mass appeal. So they are familiar to us as the places we discovered poems as children, or maybe they were taught to us in school. Um, and they've been that way sort of throughout history. Um, so in the 18th century, they were the places where young women got the policed version of culture they were allowed to have, came to them through anthologies. Um, and in the Victorian period, working class autodidacts read poetry in Palgrave's Golden Treasury. And that would have been the first sort of taste of culture they would have had. So they are these books where poetry achieves this kind of mass penetration, mass influence. And so I was really interested in what they can do and what they can kind of tell us about culture. So um, what version of culture do they provide? What do they keep in? What do they shut out? Um, and who are they for? Because anthologies are usually curated for a particular population, children or women or the working classes um, or cultural elites. And so they tell us what kind of culture those people should be allowed access to and what they shouldn't. So those were the kind of big questions on my mind when I, when I started this project. We should say that not all of these anthologies are poetry. Yeah. Um, but predominantly it's poetry mm -hmm. that gets anthologised. And there are two sort of 
Uh, your book is thematic, but it's also chronological. And so there are two ways in which people anthologize. One is to make stuff available to people who might not have seen it otherwise, which, of course, is more true in the earlier period. And the other way around is to kind of funnel it for convenience or for control. So the idea is that there is always a not necessarily hidden agenda. Mm. I mean, some of your anthologies have very open agendas about what they're trying to do. Yeah, that's right. I think that's most obviously true of the uh, communist anthologies, the British communist anthologies dating from the 1930s that I found. And they really read as political manifestos. So they have prefaces in which the editors say, you know, the capitalist world that we all know, it's going to dissolve, it's going to fall. Are you with us or are you not? Are you willing to come with us to this new revolutionary settlement? And the way that you might become acquainted with this new way of looking at the world is through literature. So here are some poems, here are some prose texts that you might want to read, some by working class authors, some by bourgeois writers, to sort of understand the new dispensation. So they are really forceful. There's only one way of reading those kinds of books, yeah. Yes, I mean, one of the themes that comes through over quite a long period, not the whole period of your book, but quite a lot of the period of your book, is the idea that the poets are the unacknowledged legislators. I mean, they do have a very high-flown idea of what they're going to achieve simply by getting people to read the right stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, when, when poets become anthologists, I found they are very idiosyncratic in their processes because they have a very specific idea of what culture should be, and that includes themselves, usually, and their friends, front and centre. Um, so we think of a book um, such as Yeats's uh, Book of Modern Poetry in 1936, and it's so well, idiosyncratic. it's hilarious, because really, he just yeah. basically says, it's, it's me. It's me. There's nobody else. Yeah. Houseman is rubbish. Hardy is rubbish. rubbish. Elliot's terribly complicated. You don't want to bother with that. Um, so that's a very personal manifesto yeah. of a kind of faintly ridiculous sort. But um, well, and, you well, know, all the people that he was friends with in the 1890s, he sort of slags off and says, oh, well, they all killed themselves. So that's that. Um, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty rude, really, his anthology. And what's left is the world according to W.B. Yeats. Yeah. Well, poets as anthologists are always going to be a bit of a menace, mm. frankly, um, unless you're interested in the poet who's doing the anthologizing. But there are quite a lot of people who, I mean, inevitably, as we all do, bear the mark of their time, but who are genuinely trying to do something more generous and more helpful, like Francis Palgrave, whose golden treasury. I mean, I don't know how many of us still remember Palgrave's Golden Treasury, but there was a time when there was, it was very difficult not to know it. Um, it was the reason Robert Frost moved to England, because it gave him a vision through poetry of what England must be like, both in its appearance and in its culture. Yeah, and that's interesting that the Golden Treasury did become so ubiquitous, because Palgrave sort of designed and curated it for quite a specific reason. He was um, really interested in working class education um, at a time when working class people by and large didn't get much. So he was closely involved with the foundation of working men's colleges in London. He knew the founders of these places and he himself had worked at um, a place where teachers were taught how to go and teach in workhouses. So he's intimately involved in this milieu and he wants to create a book that can serve as a gateway to poetry for such readers. So it's quite a specific task that he has on his mind. 
And one of the reasons that he picks lyric poets, so kind of short pieces of poetry, is that you could learn these pieces by heart. They wouldn't be completely inaccessible in the way that, say, epic poetry might be. So he kind of has that in mind. Um, and he makes sure to sort of cut out classical references that might be off-putting and not have too many notes on the page, all the things that we would associate with sort of more elite scholarly books. Um, so he has this sort of quite specific project, but then perhaps because it's associated with Tennyson and because it's such a brilliant anthology, it takes off in ways that he might not have expected. Yes, and I think we all complain now, some people do anyway, that people have a very short attention span. And Palgrave mm. absolutely accepted that we all have yep. quite a limited attention span, especially if it's for something that we don't, we haven't tried before. We're not sure. So he doesn't put in a great chunk of Paradise Lost. Um, he puts in sonnets and things. But if, as I say, it's not all about poetry. So if we wind back to the beginning, to the sort of granddaddy of all anthologies, which is Percy and his relics, mm. um, which is a point at which to create an anthology is not to narrow down in the way that we think now and to select, but to actually open up to people mm. who would have relative, I mean, just because there weren't that many books. So tell us about Percy and his relics. So, Thomas Percy is a curate in the 18th century, and he has just a couple of tiny parishes to look after, so his day job isn't very taxing, and he has time for other things. And he goes to visit a friend in a nearby village, and he notices that the friend's maid is on the point of burning this giant manuscript. And he says, oh, stop what you're doing, can I have that before you burn it to, to, to a crisp? And he has it, and it turns out to be this extraordinary collection from the 17th century of ancient, so kind of medieval, renaissance. Give us the rough sense of Percy's dates. Per, so this would have been 1753, so we're talking mid-18th century. So very precise sense. Um, <laughs> spring. And um, so, yeah, this kind of extraordinary find, and he shows it to Dr. Johnson, and Johnson says oh, well, this is pretty amazing. Maybe you should think about publishing some of these ancient poems and texts because they, ha then they haven't been in print before this point. And you obviously don't say no to Dr. Johnson. So he does so. And he also starts collecting from various libraries and universities all the other ancient English and Celtic ballads that he can lay his hands on. And the result is this book called Relics of Ancient English Poetry. And that really is his attempt to create a kind of foundational myth of, of British culture. You know, these are the ancient texts that constitute our past. And he's, I mean, it's a very interesting moment because he's right sort of half one foot in the Enlightenment mm -hmm. and one foot still in the old older um, pre-Enlightenment world, pre-empirical world. And so Percy's notes become very... Um, complicated and he finds himself writing out a whole um, explanation of how you catch fairies and he must have wondered to himself what he was doing and and Johnson indeed is ambivalent about what Percy is doing. Yeah that's right Johnson is kind of caught between thinking oh well these things are historically interesting and all literature is good and we should probably publish them but also oh, well, isn't this old stuff sort of trashy? You know, it's not spelt right. It's badly punctuated. We don't know who these poets were. You know, romances are silly, made-up tales of witches and knights. This is, this is stupid. This is infantile. So Johnson is a bit ambivalent. But Percy becomes 
fascinated by um, superstitious um, elements in particular, so the witches, the ghosts, the fairies of these tales, because he sees them as a kind of route to understanding the past. So if we know what people in the past believed in, if we know what they hoped and feared, maybe we can get a more rounded sense of who they were as people. You know, it's all very well learning about their kings and their laws and their battles, but maybe this is also a kind of historical data. So who read Percy's Reliques? Lots of people. So he sold out almost immediately. But it should be said, these people were mainly elite readers. They were mainly readers from the aristocracy, from the middle classes. So this isn't a book that would have had much cultural penetration down the scale, at least until much later when snippets would be republished in other places. But it also has a long tail in the sense that mm. that kind of idea that you can embrace romances and poetry from the mm. past for all sorts of reasons, as well as admiring them as you admired Greek and Latin verse because of its pure quality. So really, he kind of paves the way for Ossian and um, all the kind of jiggery-pokery um, and Walter Scott that, that, that came later. There's this kind of double thing of wanting to do an anthology so that you include people, you bring people into this world as Percy wanted to, wanted to share these things. Um, and then there's another kind of anthology which is very much trying to keep people out, mm. trying to stop them from reading other things. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, roughly around the same time or slightly later, anthologies called um, The Beauties of the English Poets began to be produced. And these were destined largely for families and for women. Um, and the idea was that these were readers who couldn't be exposed to culture in its entirety because that was very dangerous. You know, Shakespeare was quite naughty, Byron definitely was. So you couldn't include everything. So what you had to do was male anthologists, hack writers essentially would comb through the works of these august English writers and get the bits out that women and children were allowed to read. So these were the beauties. So they would receive a kind of policed version of culture. So um, and it would be sort of having your cake and eating it. So these publishers would want to reprint bits of Byron's Don Juan because everyone loved Byron and he was you know, really sexy, but you couldn't have all of it. So there would be vast swathes cut out of certain cantos. So yeah, it was this kind of cut and paste culture, this sort of yeah, policed version of what you were allowed access to. All the way down to the Chatterley trial, where yeah. um, the, the judge asked the jury if this was a book that you would wish your wife and servants to read. And that's the yeah, 1960s. Same idea. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we have to be very aware that. Um, so interestingly, on the basis of that idea of the anthology as a kind of clipped out version of what it's safe for your wife and servants to read, one of the slightly to me anyway, surprising enemies of the anthology mm. is Jane Austen. She can't stand them. Yeah, she makes it plain in several of her, of her novels that she really doesn't like the practice of sort of making sanitised extracts from books. So all the characters we're not meant to like are the ones who do that. Well, um, not in, it's not only that we're not the mm. ones we're not meant to like, because poor Catherine Morland... In That's true, Gabby, poor Catherine Morland, yes. We do feel very fond we do, of, we do. which is a silly thing. But she's and, stupid. And Well, she's silly. <laughs> I think of it very harsh. Um, she's silly, she's and silly. she feels that... And she's got all these quotations, which she calls misapplies and yeah. misunderstands, and she's got them all from things that are cut up. So mm. part of Jane Austen's objection, I feel, mm. is that these things have been taken out of context. Yeah. And as a writer herself, she very much is interested in context. 
but she's also very aware of what the anthologist is up to. Yeah, I think that's right. The anthologist is sort of decimating culture by presenting it in this form. But I think she's also aware that um, learning that is made up of kind of little quotations is a, an inlet to arrogance. Those, that, those aren't her words, they're the words of a contemporary, an inlet to arrogance that they encourage showing off. So if you know a handful of witty, dazzling phrases, then you pull them out at parties and you become, become that kind of person who talks in that showy off way. So um, Mrs. Elton in Emma is her example of that. And Mrs. Elton is always quoting bits of Thomas Gray but not quite getting it right and showing off. So that kind of person in Austen's world is a sort of person who, who reads anthologies. And other sort of contemporary educationalists, such as Hannah Moore, who's conservative, really conservative, nonetheless thinks that such books are hampering women's education because they're made up of fragments, and they therefore don't teach women how to think in a methodical way. So if your, your poor female brain is already hampered by being female, it cannot be helped by a diet of reading that is so broken up and sort of patchwork and fragmentary. You know, you need strong meat, which is her phrase. You need a diet of strong meat, not this sort of frippery. It's interesting how Jane Austen sort of moves from silly Catherine Morland, mm. who's, you know, hoping to shine with her quotations, Mrs. Elton, who is actually as close, really, as Jane Austen ever gets to evil. Mm. I mean, she's a really awfully unpleasant mm. and malicious person. Um, but it goes, and it goes with a whole, certainly in Austen's novels and I think elsewhere, it's one of those accomplishments, like mm. being able to draw a little bit, play the piano a little bit, sing a little bit. Everyone's allowed to do a little bit, but one is never supposed to be you know, really good at anything because that would be um, unsuitable. Um, another point at which the anthology um, moves very much into history, and in reading your book, I was quite surprised by the way this happened, is um, in the First World War, because mm. we all think of the First World War and poetry. We think of Sassoon, we think of Owen, um, and of course they came right at the end of the war. And I think, say a bit about what, what the First World War and poetry were. How, how they interacted. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I, I think I found this surprising as well. That the, the narrative we have of what First World War poetry is is so deeply entrenched, and we have these these particular poets that we think you know defined the war experience. But of course, they were only discovered and only came to popularity really right at the end of the war, and then in the twenties, in retrospect, when the war was in the past, and people were ready to think about it in a sort of less than romanticized way. But at the beginning of the war, and for most of it, the poetry that gets anthologized and is therefore popular and available to buy is mostly written by civilians, so people who have never had experience of combat, and who therefore draw on these sort of romantic, um, often medieval or Renaissance visions of what war is like. And you find them mostly invoking the ghost of Francis Drake, even though Famously, none of the First World War was fought at sea, or not, not some of it was, but not much of it. Um, and Nelson, Trafalgar, so these kind of big um, victories that you would read about in history textbooks at school, but don't really have much relevance at all to the kind of warfare that was really being fought. Agincourt is another one, another sort of famous um, touchstone. And the soldiers that start writing the poetry of the war during it, 1916, 1917, also write this kind of poetry. So it's the Sassoons of the world are really rare. 
most of the poets that get published write this kind of wistful, romantic, um, often Hellenic, we are doing this for the greater glory, our death will be a good death, it will be noble, we die, we go, we go to join the Knights of Agincourt, this kind of thing. And so the, this, this belief is really strong and really powerful and people need it and you can sort of understand their need for it to believe that sons and brothers had died for something that had meaning. So, yeah. Yes, but I mean, it was also used to get them there in the first yes. place so yes. that they could die. And there yes. was a great deal of hostility to the people who started to write the poetry that wasn't like that. But I was amazed by how, I mean, the, the First World War was really the last gasp of the arts and crafts movement, mm -hmm. the last, well, in England, different in Scotland, the last gasp of the arts and crafts movement and the last gasp of that idea of chivalry mm. which goes all the way through so that you have this extraordinary anthology which i know anything about um king albert's book for plucky little belgium yeah that's right that's compiled by a novelist called hall kane who was one of those people who just knows everyone so he called on all his famous friends and they range from sort of the former u.s president to marconi who just invented the radio and he gets all these people and he says, we need to do something for plucky little Belgium. We must create this sort of global anthology and then flog it and the profits go to the war. But also we're going to make a big deal of marketing it in America because this was 1914 and America had very much, you know, had not picked size and wouldn't for years. But they were trying to bring America into the war via poetry, by getting all these poetry and prose by all these different people who would write sort of stirring messages and combine it in this giant anthology. Yeah, well, for those of us who care a lot about literature, it's kind of both yeah. very encouraging and horrible <laughs> at the same time. Um, yeah. that, that they were so confident that literature could sway everything. Though I have to say, if you put poems for Ukraine into Google, mm. you get quite a lot of yeah. stuff back up. But then there was also um, the uh, misguided um, over-enthusiasm of various authors. And you have this extraordinary thing. We haven't managed to work out who it was, but somebody who wrote in fury from the British Embassy in Rome, saying they were trying to stop an eminent novelist, we haven't found out who, from riding into Rome in the manner of Christ on a donkey in order to um, summon up both literary and religious enthusiasm for the war. With all the circumstances reminiscent of Palm Sunday. I know, absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. But then we move on. I mean, there's this extraordinary fracture at the end of the First World War into... Um, the interwar period um, between a kind of official mm. poetry world and the anthologies become after that. Do you think it's right to say that after that the anthologies become much more, you talk about Laura Rising, mm. um, much more personal and individual? Mm, that's interesting. I think that's probably true. So the obvious example there would be Wavell's Other Men's Flowers which is produced in the midst of another war in 1944. And that is deeply personal because it's a kind of, um, he writes down all the poems he knows by heart. So that's his criterion. Everything that I know by heart will go into this book. And he thinks of it as a kind of, as Alexander Harris says this, a kind of storing up of culture. This is what's worth preserving as the world is under threat, the world as we know it. So that's kind of deeply personal. I mean, I suppose you could say it's also self-aggrandizing that what I have memorized by heart is also what is worth preserving out of culture. But yeah, the yes. personal touch. Yes, I mean, I suppose you could see, I mean, the, and the other sort of mirror image 
roughly contemporary, I think, mm. is T.E. Lawrence's Minorities, Minorities yeah. where he collected, which is, I think, a most wonderful idea. Mm. He collected either major poems by minor poets or minor poems by major poets. Um, and it's a really... But it also, I think, marks that moment of uncertainty. Wavell is kind of asserting certainty mm. at a moment of uncertainty. Lawrence is sort of acknowledging the uncertainty of the interwar period. And that idea that you're going to come up with a, an anthology that's going to kind mm. of fix it all has, has been lost. I think that's right. And another person who creates an anthology similar to this is Samuel Courtauld. Um, and this isn't published. He sends it around his family and friends, but he creates sort of beautiful fair copies that could have been published. And again, there are these kind of reduced claims that he makes for it. This isn't going to fix anything. I am not going to change culture by this. But it was 1939. He says sort of in these desperate times, what we need is a, a sort of version of hope and a lot of the depressing poetry that's been published lately, read Eliot, is not going to fix anything. So maybe this more hopeful stuff will. And then after the war, um, you get this sort of, those anthologies are sort of slightly poetry on the ration still in the 50s, don't you? They're rather kind of, well, they're all on that rather splintery paper, mm. um, which says at the front, printed under wartime restrictions. Yeah. Um, and what do you think people after the war were trying to do with anthologies? So I, think, I think, yeah. People up a bit, I suppose. Well, yeah, and I'm sort of thinking of, of, of Conquest and New Lines, which is yes. 1956, which I talk about in the book. And he there is responding to the very politicised anthologies of the 1930s, the communist anthologies, which really had said, we know how to fix culture, here is a programme for society. And Conquest, writing in the 50s, when not only fascism, but communism too, has obviously been severely discredited by events, um, says, we need to stop with ideologies, no more isms, no more thinking that a theory can change the world. This anthology will not have any politics in it. It will not have any fixed positions. The poets I have gathered um, don't, aren't part of a collective or a political collective or a school. They are just the poets that are writing now. That's all I'm saying. And the poems are markedly apolitical. And it was criticised at the time for being so because people thought it was avoiding the even bigger global realities which the war had thrown up. The atom bomb, the Holocaust, you know, absolutely huge, unignorable realities that poets were engaging with, Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, but these were poets that were excluded from, from this book. Were they excluded or were they just... Sorry, the, I the later one that he produced was early 60s. They were excluded from that. Yeah. 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 Well, of course, poetry in the 60s mm. got even more political. Um, and more, and that was the kind of the beginning of the age of poster poems, uh, poetry readings, which we slightly take for granted now. But it wasn't so usual to do poetry readings. Uh, which, and of course, every poetry reading, every poetry performance is a kind of anthology. Yeah. Um, and so the, the politics and the performance kind of flooded back in. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the 60s, people, and initially in the 60s, people were surprised that it turned out poetry could be written by people who were still alive and could perform it on stage, and that it wasn't just this thing that you read about in books that was written by dead people. So there was this really quite exciting movement of poetry being read live and often to the accompaniment of jazz, 
um, and sometimes even rock music, which happened in, in Liverpool in the, in the case of the Liverpool poets. Um, so yeah, there's really kind of exciting new time where, where poetry kind of came alive, like jumped the book. That's Michael Horowitz's phrase. Yes, well, Horowitz certainly jumped the book. Um, <laughs> But, um, I mean, Eliot, who had, after all, blown apart the constraints mm. in modern poetry, but was not, by any manner of means, a, a, a compelling performer of his mm. work. And I think, and also, I mean, as poetry editor at Faber and Faber, he was um, a kind of unacknowledged anthologist um, in terms of what he chose and what, he, what got published and what didn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. He had a huge influence over, yes, the progress of poetry. And you can see his hand at work in Michael Roberts's 1936 Faber Anthology, for sure, in which very large, well, the entirety of the Wasteland appears and lots of other Eliot. But also just um, his imprint on the popular idea of what poetry was. If you thought of poetry as Eliot and his friends, i.e. something that was um, consciously difficult, often rebarbative, quite depressing a lot of the time, sort of grappling consciously with the most complex problems that culture had to offer, then poetry becomes something very elitist. So there's a lot of pushback against that. And that's partly why these um, political anthologies in the 30s get published, because they are trying to bring culture, poetry to a wider section of society, who won't just be the typical Eliot readers. Yes, though yeah. it must be said that those very hardline communist anthologies were not exactly hot sellers. No. Um, and one of the things that interests me, because I write sometimes about architecture, is that they've developed this split, which is very much the same as you get in architecture, between, as it were, the kind of Latin school, which goes on building buildings that people can recognize and use, and the hardline modernists. And there was a similar split within poetry between the Georgian poets, um, down the line, Betjeman and Larkin, um, and the modernists. Mm -hmm. And on the whole, it must be said in this instance, in architecture, of course, the modernists had um, really carried the day rhetorically. But in poetry, it was slightly the other way around. I think Larkin was much more mm. inclined in his anthology mm. to include the modernists, um, whereas the modernists really wanted to stamp out Larkin and Betjeman Particularly Betjeman. Particularly Betjeman, for sure. Um, because Betjeman was the poet laureate, um, and he, everybody really enjoyed his stuff. Um, it's maddening. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's right, and it's always sort of a problem who like, people actually enjoy. So in the First World War, um, we think of Sassoon, but actually his books didn't sell a huge number of copies, whereas Rupert Brooke, who now is... I mean, some of his poems are good, but he's sort of a sort of joke, really. Um, sold absolutely. Well, I think so. Yeah. If, if there's a kind of <laughs> well, a by, okay, a byword for romanticizing the war. And he's, he's I mean, he's certainly know, a yeah. bit of a kind of two poem. Um, he's he's not what he, he's certainly not what he was. I'm not sure, but I'd say that's true. Pre-war was a lot better, but he sold an, a staggering amount of books. Oh yes. So and then so yeah, Larkin's anthology in the seventies. He is trying to create a sort of lineage of poetry that includes the modernists, but it, it centers around Thomas Hardy, who he sees as the sort of real touchstone. And if maybe the First World War hadn't happened, more poets would have been alive to flourish in the manner of Hardy, and the sort of Eliot Yeats path wouldn't have been such a diversion as, as he thinks of it. So 
his book, he sort of says, oh, well, you can't be eccentric in these things because everyone reads these books. They need to be representative. But it ends up being quite eccentric because it sort of foregrounds this lineage that never really happened to an extent. Well, it, I mean, it, it, it is the same in architecture and mm. it's the same in many areas that the problem with after the First World War, we will never know how many great poets, mm. how many great architects we lost. And you end up with a combination of people who are really old Victorians battling on, um, and very young people. And Larkin says that very interesting thing that you quote um, about how he hoped that time would, would choose the poets mm. and he would choose the individual poems, that there would be through time this sort of sense of a sifting so it would be obvious whose work you had to include and then you could, he could pick the, uh, the ones that he particularly wanted. Mm. And then he confesses, of course, that time has failed to do this because yeah. there's been this terrible caesura of the Great War. And that you simply, turns out, can't make an anthology without having a, a sort of agenda yourself. You know, you may think that you can just allow time to pick the poets for you, but you can't. Your interests and your prejudices and your wish for what culture might be always determine what gets in, and that's what well, he found. I do think Larkin felt, and I think he was right to feel, that had he been, as it were, his own grandfather doing yeah. this, it would have been easier. Mm. And there is something about Palgrave's Golden Treasury, whether you nobody likes all of it, it would be impossible. But there is a sort of, there is a balance about it. Yeah. And Arnold's idea of the best that has been thought and felt, you feel that it represents a consensus, it represents um, a culture at a certain moment mm. as it was. But later on, that was, would you think, I think it became impossible. I think that's right. I think it becomes increasingly contested. Yes, and Paul Graves really is a it really is a balance. So it includes um, street ballads and songs and things that you really wouldn't expect. And most of those, in fact, are championed by Tennyson, who thinks it's really important to have lots of Robert Burns in there and lots of yeah, lots of sort of street songs that reviewers had said were slovenly and weren't real poetry. And Tennyson says, yes, you know, we should include these. So it really is quite a balanced view of what poetry as uh, you know looked in 1861 and I think we haven't had that uncontested vision at any point available to us since. No or and indeed to go back to the point of the importance of poets that as you say nobody thought it was peculiar that when Garibaldi came to England yeah. he went to see Tennyson. Um, I wonder if Zelensky would go and see a poet. I think probably he hasn't bothered. No I don't think so. No. Um, <laughs> These, thing, the, these things have changed. So just to go back to the 1960s, we've mm. moved on a bit, but to go back to the 1960s, the extraordinary experience of the poetry incarnation mm. at the Albert Hall, which was filled by Michael Horowitz and um, Ginsberg and everybody mm. um, smoking dope and reading. I mean, that's a performed anthology. Yeah, performed anthology. I think a lot of people said that they weren't there for the poetry. They were there for the party experience. They were there to sort of be part of it on the night. 7,500 people showed up to the Royal Abbott Hall. Lots of dancing, lots of dope smoking, lots of cheering and, you know, playing with your beads and all the above. Um, but yes, very much a party atmosphere. And I think a lot of the poems fell quite flat. And the only one that was really applauded was something called a sneezing poem, which Christopher Logue said was the only poem that could be performed in all languages. Um, yes. So there were sort of 10 minutes of sneezing on stage and that went down very well. But a lot of the actual <laughs> poets were 
um, undergoing quite violent acid trips and therefore couldn't read as well as they might have done. That is true. There, there is, I mean, there's a wonderful film of um, the poetry incarnation, um, which is, well, it's a bit smoky for obvious yeah. reasons and sometimes it goes to one side. But there is, I, for me, um, one of the, the two best moments is Adrian Mitchell reading Tell Me Lies About Vietnam. Yes. And that's actually electrifying. And that's one of the few moments in my life when I've believed in political poetry because the anger um, of the performance, and it's quite a plain performance, it's not over-dramatised, um, but the way that it builds, um, and, and you do have a sense that the people there, that anger, that political anger, is focused and channeled properly through poetry. It's good poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that that kind of idea of the performed um, anthology probably begins there and I then goes yeah. on to literary festivals, which developed after that, later on. I think that's right. Adrian Henry, one of the Liverpool poets, says that the good thing about poetry and performance is that you know there's someone else at the end of the telephone. So you can see your audience reacting, whether they are channeling and feeling the emotions and ideas that you are channeling. And clearly, in that Adrian Mitchell moment, people were. And so poetry becomes something that could flourish on a CND march, where it can be spoken through megaphones. And people kind of come together in this moment because performance is the sort of unifying spectacle. And he says, unlike going to an art gallery where the artist can't see how the, you know, his viewers look at the paintings in performed poetry, you absolutely can. So there is this intimate back and forth. So yeah, I think that's the beginning of that. And you know, this experience can be sort of intimate in a sort of sexy way as well. You know, if you the Liverpool poets liked having girls on the front row, and the experience was like if you were a band playing to an audience of groupies, the, the idea was sort of the same. Yeah. Pheromones as well yes. as the whole the whole kind of poetry groupie thing went mm. with uh, rather unattractively, you know, I might think, um, with the nineteen <laughs> sixties poetry rock star thing yeah. and there was that sense of course that the poets um wanted to be rock stars yeah absolutely never really but penguin was very anxious that they should be marketed as such and it's very interesting seeing the archival material in penguins archives about how they were pushing the mersey sound anthology and they say you know this has to be the poetry manifestation of the pop moment. Um, we want something these alive. These are the poetry Beatles. Exactly. They these wish. are the poetry Beatles. We need something alive and rowdy and pop. And in the Liverpool scene, it's designed to look like a record sleeve. And it has recorded live along the Mersey beat on the front cover, as if you might be fooled into thinking that it wasn't a book. Um, and inside, it has a poster of Ringo in his pants. So you can see what yeah. they were doing. It wasn't subtle. No, 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 <laughs> no, none of that was subtle. No. So I think as we kind of moving towards the end of our conversation, yep. wither the poetry anthology. <laughs> Go on. Where is it? Is it over? Has it a future? Is it a playlist? Yeah. What I mean, what do we want now from? We talk now about curation mm. of practically everything or anything. Mm. Do you think there's a future for the anthology? Yeah, well, I sort of say at the end of the book that, 
curation is now available to everyone because um, everyone sort of has a platform from which to create um, via the internet. You have an unlimited um, selection of texts. You have the ability to bring things together on a platform that is your own and also share it with an unlimited number of people. So in theory, you know, the possibilities of the anthology are limitless. Um, we might not want to read all of them, but then well, we, we don't anyway. Draw, I mean, that's like the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Like every Everyone their own anthology. Yes. The great thing about Palgrave or whoever you choose is that it was, I mean, one of the reasons it was so successful was that people did learn poems off by heart. They learned them together. And so it was a currency between mm. people. You knew that this person would know that poem, that you also knew. Um, so I wonder whether we are going to be able to do that, in the, have that. I mean, it's, it is the paradox that the more there is, the yeah. less shared yeah. um, experience there may be. Yeah, I think you put it exactly right. The more there is, the less we may be able to share and have these common touchstones. And we're, we're sort of quite suspicious of common touchstones now because we realise that they are usually curated and they usually have an agenda. Um, museums, for instance, we used to think of them purely reverentially and now we don't and we critique what's in there and what's not. So I think we are suspicious of those kinds of things and we're suspicious of anthologies that do the same kind of thing. So There's a slightly gloomy note to end on, but I think... <laughs> Um, I think what I will do is thank you now because we want to take have time for some yep. questions. But Claire, thank you very much. What a fascinating thank you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Who wants to ask a question to start with? I've asked enough questions. Um, that was really interesting. And I just wondered what you thought about women in poetry anthologies because my, one of my first um, encounters with... Um, Elizabeth Bishop was her refusal to be in an anthology, and I loved her poems. And I thought that was—I'd never—I discovered her quite late because I, most women I've encountered in anthologies because they're not published in whole collections as much as men. Yeah. And then I—I I thought, well, you could look at it a different way in some ways when you're talking about the politics of anthologies, because there have always been women who been rediscovered in anthologies mm. like in the 18th century there's poems by eminent ladies and yeah. specimens of British poetesses, yeah. and I mean they. The names, the titles of those anthologies do suggest slightly, you know, you're being sort of classified in, yeah. you know, in a way that perhaps you might not want to be. Yeah. But on the other hand, at least you're being acknowledged and you're you're being shown to be part of a tradition. And I think there have been always been women who've been interested in being anthologists. So another yeah. early, earlier than Percy, in fact, is Elizabeth Cooper, who, yes. and she she discovered Chaucer really for the. So I think that's really important to acknowledge that. I think the relationship between people who feel they're marginalised, but nonetheless they want to contribute to their culture is really mm. interesting. And I think that's what anthologies, they really raise that, because whenever you make a selection, you're leaving someone out. Yes. 
And that's so that you might even call some different anthologies through your making an anthology, if you see what I mean. <laughs> because the people you leave out then decide to make a group too. Yeah. And that would. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. And I think also with the oral anthology, well, no, that, that's all I just wanted to put Well, there's a huge amount in there to unpack. <laughs> I'd just like to know, first of all, why did Elizabeth Bishop not want to be an anthologist? Yeah, I want to know. I don't think I knew that. I don't know. Oh, she didn't want to be seen as a woman poet. Just for those who didn't hear, because she didn't want to be seen as a woman poet. She wanted to be seen as a poet. So, Claire, what would you say to it? Yeah, it's a good question. I was very conscious when I was looking at the beauties anthologies that were made for women, was that there weren't really any women in them. And I always think how strange it must have been to have experienced a culture that was made for you and given to you on a plate that nonetheless had none of you in it. So that must have been quite odd. And you're right that often anthologies that did contain women were implicitly marginalising them in some way. So there were lots of the female muse and that sort of thing, or the home affections, the sort of typical Victorian anthology that would have included women. So yes, women are allowed in, but only if they play quite a specific role. But some anthologies put women at their centre for really good reasons. I'm thinking of um, Al Alvarez's The New Poetry in 1962. And um, Sylvia Plath really is absolutely key in that anthology because she sort of symbolises for Alvarez that ability to kind of cut to the quick of your experience, to not shy away from the scariest things that you know about yourself. So sometimes. Yes. Did you say that there was an unpublished anthology made by Samuel Courtauld? Yes. The collector. I just asked, I mean, yes. I come from Art Angle and it was interesting. I mean, obviously this sense of curating to get the mm. creating culture and that, yeah. you know, he, gave, he gives money to the nation to buy in modern French painting. So he obviously has a sense that, you know, he wants to kind of promote certain visions of culture. It's quite interesting he's yeah. doing it in art and poetry and, well, A-checking, it was definitely him, yeah. his name you'd heard and there was anything else you could say about that? Because, as I say, I'm interested in him from the art collecting point of view. Yeah, I know about this from um, our friend Inigo Thomas, who's an LRB Please. contributor. And um, Inigo knows about it because Samuel Courtauld gave a copy to his grandmother, and they, oh. they were friends. Um, so Inigo kindly showed me his grandmother's copy. Um, and it's, yeah, so from 1939, just before the outbreak of war, and it is this very sort of intimate document that he only gave copies to his closest friends and families. Um, and yeah, he says that um, I'm not trying to do much with this apart from sort of reach out. It's, it's this kind of, he really doesn't expect it to go anywhere. He doesn't expect it to be published. He is simply picking things that he loves and that give him hope, as I said before, that weren't sort of um, depressing and self-involved, which in his view, a lot of poetry had become. So it was a sort of way of reaching out in his mind. Okay, thanks. I thought he had failed to get it published. I haven't appreciated No, he didn't want to. He didn't want to. It's like a commonplace book. Yeah. I was going to say, it yeah. does. I was actually going to ask, I was saying, surely the modern, the, the older equivalent yeah. of the internet is the commonplace yes. book, yeah. which was something you hadn't mentioned, but it was also something that was. Well, I think, I mean, the, yes, the, it's very interesting about the commonplace book, but I think the commonplace book comes much closer to the family photograph album, and you really mm. wouldn't share that. Mm. That would be private. Um, or with a you know a small circle of friends and family. I think it's rather charming that Courtauld, obviously, who felt so confident about his taste in paintings, yeah. was rather more sort of, oh, well, the, you know, these are just some things I like mm. um, about the poetry. Mm. Um, no, it's very it's a very interesting point. Um, 
Yes. Thanks so much. That was really, really interesting. Um, I'm coming at this, um, so I'm a music historian, mm. and one of the things that I've dipped my toe in a little bit in the last couple of years is um, what's been described as a middle-brow impulse, um, a kind of impulse to bring um, like supposedly great works of art, great mm. works of music to the masses. And I was curious about the extent to which that played out in kind of po poetry or th mm. anthologies, how much that, um, how much there was kind of a top-down impulse to mm. kind of use mm. these for an educational mm. um, purpose, particularly in the 20th century. Yeah, I just would be really interested to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's particularly true of poetry in, in the 19th century. Um, and this, it, that really is the idea behind Paul Graves' Golden Treasury, that it absolutely is this top-down handing of the best things that have been written as he sees it, as Matthew Arnold sees it, to the masses, which is absolutely how he, he sort of viewed it. So that, that, was, that was his project. But I think more broadly that middle brow impulse sort of speaks to what anthologies have done over the centuries. Yes, a kind of um, benevolent impulse um, from above to bring a certain version of culture, whether the best or um, a slice of what you would like other people to think and feel. Um, but I think that's also been at the basis of, of, of the backlash against anthologies for a long time. So um, some of the romantic poets, um, Coleridge in particular, were very anti the fact that so many readers um, only read um, beauties and elegant extracts because he thought it was sort of bringing culture down to the lowest common denominator. If people only read these tiny extracts, the great works of English literature are being shrunk down. So it should be either all or nothing. Either the elite have everything and the people have nothing fine, but this kind of middle-brow dilution is a problem, as he sees it, and many of his contemporaries do as well. Yes, Coleridge, much more snobbish. I mean, yeah, I think we really shouldn't snobby. be too hard on Palgrave. I mean, no. he really was trying. Yeah. And don't forget how expensive books were. You know, it wasn't easy yeah. for everyone to just go out and get all this stuff. And Palgrave was really very deeply committed mm. um, to getting as much of what he thought was worthwhile mm. to as many people as possible. He didn't, in that sense, beyond that, he didn't really have an agenda. You yeah. wanted to ask something. So I think until tonight, I probably um, shared um, Jane Austen's view of um, anthologies. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I guess... As a very much a newcomer to anthologies, I'd be interested in your sort of, what's your favourite? What would you put on your bedside? Um, uh, what would you take to a desert island? Or what would you put on my bedside? Ooh, um, I don't think I know you well enough. But <laughs> no, I would always, I, I'm such a fan of um, Auden and John Garrett's The Poet's Tongue, which I imagine might be familiar to a few of you here. And the idea behind that was, it was sort of Auden being a bit mischievous and he was sort of said that, Poetry is simply memorable speech in the way that jokes or slang are memorable speech. So anything can be a poem as long as it's memorable. So that could be a sea shanty or a ditty or a riddle, as well as Shakespeare and Keats and Byron. So he creates this anthology that's a sort of democratizing jumble of all those things, plus many more Christmas carols, you know, all the above. Mm. Um, and when Seamus Heaney comes to create the Rattlebag, he says that he had the poet's tongue in mind, um, and it arranges the poems um, alphabetically by first word. So there's no sort of hierarchy, there are no dates, you don't know who you're going to encounter next, um, everything is jumbled up together. And Heaney says it has this countercultural impulse. 
which I think is a nice way of putting it and not necessarily a word that Auden would have known or used, but I think applies to it quite nicely. So I would recommend that. I would, uh, nobody's asked me what I'd recommend. Oh, sorry, Rosie. No, 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 what would you recommend? No, and I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend it, but I do love an anthology, um, which of course couldn't be published now, called Smoke Rings and Roundelays, which is an anthology of poetry and prose about smoking. Mm. And when it was republished, there's a little note in the front saying, of course, we all realise now it's terribly dangerous and you absolutely shouldn't do it. But um, it is worth remembering how many moments of happiness, companionship and consolation have been captured in the writing about smoking. So just saying that. Um. Thanks. Thanks so much. I've learned, I've learned so much about anthologies tonight. Um, and I grew up in France, and I feel like we didn't have that many anthologies at school and at university. Like, we, we were in high school given whatever, like La Fontaine or Baudelaire poet right in the text. But... I don't know if it's a specifically French thing, but we were never given anthologies, and I don't like I would be completely unable to cite one. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's a default of my knowledge, but is there something specifically Anglo-Saxon about wanting to do I, anthologies? No, I was thinking that reading about. No, I think there's something very Anglo-Saxon about it. You have this one. Well, <laughs> <thanks>. <laughs> um, no, I said, well, I, I mean, I'm I can't speak for everywhere, but it did all the time I was reading this, I mm. was thinking this is so unfriendly. Ah, um, because there is, although we now all rail against the idea of the canon, in mm. fact, we are very flexible. Everyone has their own canon, and the canon changes from time to time. And in France, I think it is still much more rigorous. Um, so this idea of people just kind of dipping in and out and making an anthology of just things they like mm. or things from a certain period or things about smoking or whatever, um, I think it's very ungallic in the way that a certain kind of biographical writing is also, mm. speaking as a biographer, very ungallic. So I think that's a really interesting point. Thank you for making it. I just thought we'd been very restrained not to mention the name of Christopher Logue because um, his um, anthology about London poets is very good. I really, I'd really recommend that for a good bedside read. But also, um, he was so amazing in showing that the oral culture of poetry, from we haven't mentioned Homer either. Mm. And he was so, I mean, to be able to just do that with no, no Greek and to base it on other translations was incredibly bold and it was just, it's had such success and and listening to him on the CDs, I used to do a great lecture for my students when I used to lecture about Homer and Eminem. <laughs> and um, it was just, I think that rap culture as well and performance poetry, it's in all sorts of places that people who used to edit anthologies probably wouldn't know where to look now. But it's sort of, it's on the, it's still very alive, I think, for performance poetry. And so that poetry is performance. And I just thought Christopher's, we should, I mean, I think it's amazing. Um, his series of poems about Homer, which are, yeah. Completely agree. <laughs> yes. Um, are there any more burning questions? If not, um, Claire's very kindly said she will um, sign books. You have to buy them, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to buy them. <laughs> um, and then we can all have a sort of more general chat and a drink. That's all right with you. Thank you very much, Rosemary. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.